Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Thursday afternoon, August 27th here down in Cape May. Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe and healthy as we continue to fight the coronavirus pandemic. Coming up today on the podcast is an interview I recorded earlier today with the Wall Street Journal's Lane Higgins. She uh, came back on the podcast to talk about all the crazy things that have changed regarding college football uh, since the last time we spoke in June. Uh, and so that was a really great conversation. We touched on a lot of things. I'm really excited for everyone to have a chance to hear that. But before we get to that interview, uh, yesterday was an incredible day in the sports world. The Milwaukee Bucks uh, decided to, in in protest of the police shooting of another unarmed black man, this time it was a man named Jacob Blake in Wisconsin. Police shot him seven times in the back. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks decided in protest not to play their 4 p.m. game against the Orlando Magic. That was supposed to be their playoff game, game five. They, in protest, stayed in the locker room, didn't come out. Uh, the NBA quickly pivoted and postponed all the games the rest of the day. Games today are also postponed. It's unclear what will happen this weekend. Uh, Woj and Shams and all these guys are trying to report and figure out what's going on in the bubble, but it's a really fluid situation. Don't know necessarily what exactly will happen down the NBA bubble, but the protest uh, had effects across the entire sports world. It wasn't just in the NBA. The WNBA, who's also in a bubble down in Florida at the IMG Academy in Bradenton, they they protested and did not play any games yesterday. The MLS teams protested and did not play. Multiple Major League Baseball games were suspended due to the protests of this shooting. And I don't really know what to say. Uh, I said my piece about all this stuff back in June after the George Floyd murder. Uh, It's just really depressing. It's really disturbing how continually in this country, how black men are treated by the police and how so many times it the result turns into the police shooting them and that doesn't it's not right and it's not just and something needs to change and people are getting sick and tired of nothing changing and the the outcomes being the same and it has to change and so I don't know what else I can say I decided that to start this podcast I'm going to play uh clips from three different sources talking about these issues uh, and the Jacob Blake shooting. So the first video uh, I'm going to play is what Doc Rivers uh, said uh, yesterday about uh, the Jacob Blake shooting, and it was really powerful. So I'm going to play that first. And this, this viewing this fear, right? Like, all you hear Donald Trump and all of them talking about fear. We're the ones getting killed. We're the ones getting shot. Uh, We're the ones that we're denied to live in certain communities. Um, We've been hung. We've been shot. And all you do is keep hearing about fear. It's, It's amazing to me why we keep loving this country and this country does not love us back. And it's just, it's really so sad. 
Like, I should just be a coach. And it's so often reminded of my color. You know, it's just really sad. We got to do better. Uh, but we got to demand better. Like, we got, you know, it's, it's funny. We protest and they send riot guards, right? Uh, they send people in riot outfits. They go to Michigan with guns and they're spitting on cops and nothing happens. The training has to change in the police force. The unions have to be taken down in the police force. My dad was a cop. I believe in good cops. We're not trying to defund the police and take all their money away. We're trying to get them to protect us. Just like they protect everybody else. Uh, I didn't want to talk about it before the game because it's so hard like to just keep watching it that video if if you watch that video you don't need to be black to be outraged you don't you need to be american and outraged and how dare the republicans talk about fear we're the ones that need to be scared we're the ones having to talk every to every black child what white father has to give his son a talk about being careful if you get pulled over? It's, it's just ridiculous. And, and it just keeps getting, it keeps going. Uh, there's no charges. Breonna Taylor, no charges, nothing. All we're asking is you live up to the Constitution. That's all we're asking for everybody, for everyone. The next clip I'm going to play is the Milwaukee Bucks after their protest. They protested. They stayed in the locker room. They worked on a statement. And then after a few hours, they came back out of the locker room and uh, delivered a statement on, uh, on why they chose to protest and not play. Well, um, as you can see, we all thank you guys for taking a time to stay here with us. I'm um, sorry that it took a little bit more time, but we thought... It would be best for us as a team to brainstorm a little bit, educate ourselves, um, and not rush into having raw emotions, giving you guys things like that. So uh, on behalf of ourselves and our team, we're going to place a statement as a team today and go back and continue to educate ourselves and get better awareness of what's going on. And then we're going to speak to you guys later. So we'll come up with a statement now. Our team statement, uh, the past four months have shed a light on the ongoing racial injustices facing our African-American community. Citizens around the country have used their voices and platforms to speak out against these wrongdoings. Over the last few days in our home state of Wisconsin, we've seen the horrendous video of Jacob Blake being shot in the back seven times by a police officer in Kenosha and the additional shooting of protesters. Despite the overwhelming plea for change, there has been no action. So our focus today cannot be on basketball. When we take the court and represent Milwaukee and Wisconsin, we are expected to play at a high level, give maximum effort, and hold each other accountable. We hold ourselves to that standard, and in this moment, we are demanding the same from lawmakers and law enforcement. We are calling for justice for Jacob Blake and demand the officers be held accountable. 
For this to occur, it is imperative for the Wisconsin State Legislature to reconvene after months of inaction and take up meaningful measures to address issues of police accountability, brutality, and criminal justice reform. We encourage all citizens to educate themselves, take peaceful and responsible action, and remember to vote on November 3rd on behalf of the Milwaukee Bucks. Thank you. So that was from yesterday. That was delivered by Sterling Brown, who has an ongoing lawsuit against the Milwaukee Police Department for police brutality he experienced from the police department uh, in, in Milwaukee and by George Hill. The last video I'm going to play for you guys is from uh, New York Mets first baseman Dominic Smith. He delivered a statement after the game uh, talking about just what his emotions have been like uh, the last few days dealing with the shooting of Jacob Blake is really powerful. He's choking back tears the whole time. So I'm going to play that now. You know, what has been the most difficult part about whether it's today or just even the past two months, what has been most difficult for you? continuously happen. I mean, it just shows um, just the hate in people's heart. And, I mean, I mean, that, that just sucks, you know? And being a black man in America, it's, it's not easy. So, I mean, like I said, you know, I, I just, I wasn't there today, but I I'll bounce back. I'll be fine. The first video clip came from Dr. Rose's press conference filmed by ESPN. The second clip of the Milwaukee Bucks came from Malika Andrews. And the third clip of Dominic Smith came from SNY TV. We'll be back with my interview with Lane Higgins from earlier today after the break. is a special guest, a sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal, Lane Higgins. She's been covering all things college football this summer and writing extensively on the topic, and I'm thrilled she's able to take the time to come back on the podcast and join me today. Lane, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks so much for having me again, David. For sure. So we were texting a little bit at the end of last week and earlier yesterday to try to set this up, and then since we set up the time for today, recording this mid-afternoon on August 27th, Kind of just the Milwaukee Bucks uh, staged a strike or a boycott. I don't know the exact technical labor term to describe it, but in protest of the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Wisconsin earlier this week, the Milwaukee Bucks decided that they were not going to play their playoff game yesterday, which then led to the NBA postponing games the rest of the day, MLS games, baseball games, uh, tennis matches, WNBA games. Everything kind of was on hold for one night. And this is obviously a developing story. So I'm just curious, you know, has there been any uh, 
carry over down to the college football ranks just what are college football teams doing today are players making statements so it's like like how is college football kind of reacting in the early news to to obviously this major story yeah well some of the players that are currently gearing up for their season some teams did hold practices yesterday and after practice did have extensive discussions about you know what's going on what they're seeing what they're feeling, and there are a handful of programs that decided not to have practice today, um, or if they did practice, it was more of a just let the team gather and discuss and download about everything. And so far, it doesn't look like there's going to be any sort of boycott or college kids not playing games, partially because the earliest football game is on Saturday between Central Arkansas and Austin PA, and I don't think that they are... I haven't seen anything to indicate that that game is going to be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, there has been growing momentum over the summer for college athletes to be able to express activism. Several conferences have allowed patches to be put on jerseys, and as has the NCAA, said that um, you know these athletes can speak up. Um, NCAA President Mark Emmert just came out with a statement condemning you know, racial violence and injustice and supporting college athletes that choose to protest uh, peacefully. But, you know, again, it's it's kind of still in a point of processing this, and I mm. think that we'll maybe start to see more developments in this as time goes on. One hundred percent, because this is a truly developing story. When as we're talking, something could change, or once we hang up and the podcast comes out, everything could be different. Or uh, yeah. so, really, just you had to tune in Wall Street Journal, follow Lane Higgins on Twitter, all that good stuff. But since the last time we spoke in June, so much has changed. Because when we spoke in June. Oh my God. The prospects of, the, of a 2020 college football season and just the shape it will take was completely different. Schools were welcoming back players for voluntary workouts. And even though they, a lot of schools had positive COVID tests, almost everyone was intending for and they were really optimistic about playing a season this fall. I guess just to start here, what's kind of changed in these last three months that have gotten us to, to where we are today? Oh, gosh, it seems like June was a lifetime ago yes. in terms of where college football was. And we're now at a point where every single division and every single team in college football has decided that they won't play fall sports except for about 76 teams. So that is two independents. I think that's Army and BYU and Liberty. I'm just kidding, that's three. Um, Notre Dame has temporarily joined the ACC this year, so... Mm-hmm. I'm sure some people are rolling over in their graves when they heard that. Um, <laughs> and the ACC is one of three Power Five conferences that's going forward. It's um, ACC, SEC, Big 12, and then the Sun Belt Conference, the American Athletic Conference, and Conference USA are going forward with football. The AAC and CUSA are not playing any other sports. Mm-hmm. Um, cross country is still up in the air, but fall, um, soccer, field hockey, volleyball, those are all going to be in spring because the NCAA decided that all championships would be in the spring. Yeah. And that affects basically every single sport except for the top level of football because the playoffs, the college football playoff semifinal that you know last year LSU won, that's controlled by a separate entity. And Bill Hancock, who runs the college football playoff, has said, you know, we're still going to plan on trying to have rankings released this year and hold the final ranking on December 20th, which is about three weeks after it normally is. And the reason why it's delayed is that the six leagues that are going forward with playing football have all said that they're going to delay the season a little bit, for mm-hmm. the most part. Um, in the Big 12, conference play doesn't begin until September 26th, but they can play one non-conference game before that, so we'll start seeing those games on September 12th. 
um, in the SEC games are conference only, but they won't start until September 26th. Then the ACC games start on September 12th, and some are conference, some are non-conference, but they're playing a 10 plus one schedule. So about 10 conference games and one non-conference. Yeah. And already we've seen some flexibility in the ACC schedule um, mm-hmm. because yesterday NC State um, they've had a series of outbreaks, um, a fair amount of which have been among athletics. And a pretty big one has been on the football team. And because of that, they moved their season opener, which was supposed to take place against um, Virginia Tech on September 12th, back two weeks to September 26th. And I think that's a pretty good indication of how this football season is is going to go and that it's going to be really, really in flux. And there's already been several accounts of teams. I think LSU and Oklahoma are ones that are pretty prominent, but they've had outbreaks on one position group that has sidelined almost everyone in that position group. So, you know, can you imagine if one of your quarterbacks comes down with COVID, all your quarterbacks are practicing together, all of a sudden it's game day, and you don't have anyone to throw passes. You'll Mm -hmm. be running a pretty funny wildcat. For 100%, and also just just the structure of football, a lot of coaches describe it as it's almost like two different teams of the offense and the defense within the football team. And then also just the position group spends so much time together. It would make sense that if a quarterback got it or if, or if an offensive lineman got it, there could be a lot of transmission uh, just between that position group as well from all the meetings and just eating together and all that good stuff. But so you mentioned three Power Five conferences are playing. The Big Ten and the Pac-12 decide that they will not be playing this fall how did they reach that decision and just why did they choose not to play considering other power five peers are playing and the PAC 12 also released this, I don't know if it's infamous, but this document to the public kind of outlining their decision from their medical board. So, so can you kind of just explain what into the, those two conferences decisions not to play and just the whole PAC 12 document for anyone who didn't read it? Sure. I mean, it's been an interesting situation there because, in theory, all of the doctors that are advising the NCAA and all of the different Power Five conferences are looking at the same information. Mm-hmm. But, you know, based on the facts on the ground, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 decided not to go forward. Now, it's a little bit more straightforward in the Pac-12 because the state regulations in California and parts of Washington and Oregon, where many of the teams are located, are still very strict. And, like, at UCLA, for instance, they still haven't been able to get players on campus for voluntary workouts in any, or practice in any form as of early August, whereas teams like LSU have been practicing and have had kids around campus since the end of May, early June. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you know, when you're deferring to public health officials there, it kind of doesn't make sense to go forward with it. And part of the reason why the Big Ten and the Pac-12 called off the season when they did is that there was an emerging research, I think coming out of um, a research group in Germany, that showed that there are a lot more long-term cardiac consequences of contracting COVID than previously known. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to have a really severe case of it. You could be asymptomatic, but one of the complications is this um, condition called myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle. And essentially what that means is that if you are toxing yourself and you are unaware that you have this condition, you might not be modifying your behavior, but your heart is under an immense strain and you can have a heart attack. And that's actually killed a lot of people in the past. Um, I think there was a player on the Celtics who died at the age of 27. I'm forgetting his name, but you know, that's a very serious issue. And I think it's come out that there's about a dozen players in the big 10 that have experienced um, serious consequences and it have shades of myocarditis and, I think there's also been a player at, um, he's a freshman quarterback at Georgia State that 
said, you know, I'm not playing this season because this is what's going on with me. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, gave a lot of um, the medical advisors and also just a lot of people involved in conference decision-making pause because that makes it a very more tangible risk because, yes, it may not look like much more than a cold when the athletes have it, but if they can, you know, spontaneously be killing them for dead during a football game, yeah. that's a completely different story. And I think that that is part of the reason why the Big Ten and Pac-12 ultimately decided against it. Um, in the Big Ten release, they did say that there was some trepidation about um, access to testing, and that's been a major issue across the United States, that there's kind of this bottleneck on availability of testing and testing turnaround time. And essentially, if you aren't able to secure tests in an efficient manner frequently and get your results back fast, they kind of become moot, and then you're playing football blind. And that was one of the big reasons why the um, Big Ten said, you know, we just don't feel that this risk is necessary to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and. This isn't to say that the Big Ten and Pac-12 won't play football. Um, both leagues are apparently looking at playing in the spring, possibly in the winter, but all of those decisions are still being hammered out, and it's kind of unclear when that will come about. So if, is this just an example? Because as you mentioned, the Big 12 and the Pac-12, they have their medical advisors, they have their presidents. The medical information is not that much different from what the Pac-12 is hearing versus what let's say the SEC is hearing. Is this just an example of the other major power five conferences, their presidents uh, just have a, you know, they're just, you know, they believe that, they, that, that, that they are comfortable in taking the risk or are there just medical advisors giving them something different? You know, I, it's hard to say exactly what is behind the differing opinions. And I imagine that some of it is differing risk tolerance. Mm-hmm. Some of it is also, you know, this price has been politicized. And if you yeah. look at where they're going forward with playing football, it's places where it's much more ingrained in the life of these college towns perhaps, and it's also in states that tend to be red. And if you look at generally how this virus has trended, it's people that don't want to shut down that are pushing forward the most with football. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not to say that this is a strict Republican-Democrat issue, but I do think that there's a lot of people saying that we need to at least try everything we can do because there's no way to play football without risk. Right. And even in a normal year, there's risk involved in football. So what's a little more with a pandemic? For sure. Um, so... You know, it, it, a lot of these schools that are playing, they're not, they don't have liability forms. They have no way to lessen the risk. I think they're just more comfortable with taking it. Gotcha. So, but there was these inklings of rumors and discussions after the Big Ten announcement that Nebraska may or may not have wanted to join the Big 12 for a year since they released a statement that they had objected to the decision not to play by the Big Ten. Is there any chance of, of that happening now where a school can change conferences or even just a player like a star quarterback like Justin Fields could change schools just to play a season this fall? So the short answer in terms of schools changing conferences is no. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw Nebraska come out guns blazing. They had a statement from their football coach, athletic director, chancellor, and system president all saying, you know, we are very mad at how the Big Ten handled this. We wanted to play, but contractually, there's no way that they can leave. If, I mean, if they do, or even if they get close to it, there's millions of dollars of exit fees and all sorts of negotiations. I don't think their TV um, contract with the Big Ten would allow them to, which is the main reason why you'd want to play, is getting mm-hmm. money from the TV contracts. That wouldn't carry over into a different league. And the Big 12 also didn't look that interested in inviting Nebraska. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> Commissioner Bob Bowlesby there was like, yeah, no, you're not <laughs> 
But when it comes to individual players, it's possible that they could transfer. You know, we have seen some players enter the transfer portal in the last few weeks, but I don't know about whether they would be able to get eligibility because mm-hmm. usually football is one of the sports where if you transfer, you have to sit out for a year unless yeah. you one of these extenuating circumstances um, pertain to you, you know, one of which is a medical hardship. So say you're transferring to be within 100 miles of a sick family member, and, you know, these rules are really that granular. And there's others where, you know, you were run off because of a roster spot or you were the subject of, you know, abuse or mistreatment by a coach or another player um, or another student. And, you know, those are previous ways that athletes have been able to get eligibility immediately, but it's unlikely that the NCAA will go for that this year, particularly because the NCAA is not counting this as a year towards eligibility for anyone. Mm -hmm. So in theory, if a Big Ten player, you know, tries to transfer unsuccessfully but ends up staying at their school and they play four games in the spring, that doesn't matter because they don't burn a year of eligibility to play those four games. So you're almost better off sitting tight. Interesting, interesting. So just sticking with the conference here for a minute, college football revenue is extremely important not just to so many of these schools' athletic department budgets, but also just to the town economy as a whole. If you think about a town like Ann Arbor, Michigan, or where Penn State plays in Pennsylvania, like without football, that's mm-hmm. that's so big for the town economy. Just what are some of the financial implications of these conferences deciding not to play? And just how does it trickle down to the lower levels of college football if it does at all. Well, it's huge. Um, and like you said, there's a lot of businesses that are contingent on, you know, seven home game Saturdays every fall for, you know, accounting for a third or half of their business for a year. And it's unclear how you make up for that. And with a lot of these athletic departments, the difference between playing football with no fans and not playing football is the difference between losing $70 million with no fans and losing $80 million. So they're kind of up a creek no matter what. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be some serious consequences when it comes to furloughs and layoffs and you know playing less games, teams getting cut, et cetera. But the reason why you know some of these schools are bracing for this but also don't really have a plan yet is they're waiting to see if they can stage um, these sports later on in the spring. And also if March Madness gets canceled again, and there's not a payout from the NCAA, oh, well, yeah. that's a completely different situation because for the vast majority of universities, the most athletic department revenue comes from the NCAA's payout. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it would come from maybe a school subsidy or a public subsidy from the state government, but for the most part, they're funding their athletics based on however March Madness goes. Yep. And, you know, your Ohio State, your Alabama, Kentucky, to the world, that's not necessarily the case, but they make their money from football and football tickets and TV. And if they lose that, it's kind of everyone is losing. So it's, it's hard to say exactly how serious this is because it's just so, so huge and there's so much unknown. But certainly not having football affect everyone and stands to hurt some of these little guys the most. And it also, it doesn't just affect the Division One guys, but, you know, I was an right. athlete at Division Three school. So much of our budget, what came from the NCAA, mainly through March Madness and the billion-dollar mm-hmm. TV deals that CBS and everyone gives them. But mm-hmm. it's, you mentioned at the top with the, in relation to the most recent protest in the NBA of, with the Jacob Blake shooting, throughout these summer months, we saw 
college players, as you mentioned, using their voice, protesting Sam for what's right, but they're also uniting for representation and more influence as well in the in the decision-making process with college football. There was the Pac-12-led We Are United campaign, and it seemed like the just a more of a nationwide player-led We Want to Play movement that was primarily linked to Trevor Lawrence since our president retweeted him. Are these unionization attempts by college football players, and are they a part of the same initiative, or are they just different causes? You know, it's hard to demarcate exactly, and it's funny. There was so much that happened in that one week where college sports was shutting down, or mm-hmm. you know, some of the conferences were calling it off, that I completely forgot to mention this side of it, and that the athletes were a big part of that yeah. pressure that was building. But it sounds like they're not explicit attempts to unionize, but I don't know. It depends on how you define union in this case. I mean, the athletes want some sort of organization where they can discuss their concerns, where they can have a seat at the table and be helping make some of these decisions. But what exactly that looks like is unclear because, you know, a union typically means there's an elected structure and that you're paying dues, but given the nature of college sports and that there's turnover, it's hard to know how they would necessarily handle that in the same way. Mm-hmm. And I think more than anything, these college athletes are realizing that they have the power to call out their coaches and affect change and, you know, have some say, but they just, it's a matter of how you're going to do it. And I think that's still very much unknown. And, you know, the it's a loosely organized effort in that the first thing that popped up was in the Pac-12. And a few days later, you get, um, there's two athletes, four football players in the Big Ten that published College Athlete Unity. And that's a movement that has a lot of members from across the country. And then that sort of got merged and glommed onto by the We Want to Play movement. But the biggest thing that all of these players are pressing for is not that there's all these disparate, movements is that, you know, at the end of the day, maybe some of our aims differ, but we just want to be able to have more negotiating power and we mm-hmm. want to be able to have our voices feel heard. Instead of just being at the duress of coaches and administrators that just say, you know, yes, you play, no, you don't. And it, I think you especially are seeing that now, given the dynamics of a pandemic and that in right. order to play sports, you are putting yourself at more risk. For sure. And speaking of coaches, throughout the summer months and recently a lot of them have been saying a lot of them saying that the safest place for their players to be is to be on campus doing workouts practices even if there are no games that college camps is the safest place to be but they also communicated through the players throughout the summer that us that that them as athletes and football players could be leaders on campus wearing masks doing physical distancing yet not surprisingly many college students who haven't seen their friends in months have gone out to bars and frat parties while you know, not always wearing masks. And this has led to outbreaks around the country, most prominently at Alabama, where they have over 500 cases so far, UNC, which has shifted to virtual learning, Notre Dame, which is on a pause to virtual learning. Have any of these coaches tried to change their position that campuses are safe or just tried to address this apparent inconsistency? Well, you know, they're sticking to it. (laughs) And I think they weren't wrong in that college campuses were safe when it was just the athletes who were really bought into this being on campus. Mm -hmm. And I think they always knew that it was going to be pretty interesting whatever happened when the rest of the student body came back. You know, Notre Dame's athletic director, Jack Swarbrick, basically said that in early August, before classes started at Notre Dame, you know, what happens in the first two weeks when they're back is going to be really key in deciding what happens for the rest of the semester. And, you know, it's true that when these athletes are at athletic facilities that are clean very often, they're tested all the time, like the athletes are in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. The problem is that not all the universities are devoting the same kind of resources to every other student. 
and that, you know, Notre Dame just hired extra security guards to make sure that students aren't sneaking out of their quarantine housing to, you know, see their friends. So this is an issue where there's not compliance in all of the regulations by the greater public. It doesn't, and the problem with coronavirus is it doesn't have to be, you know, thousands of people that aren't complying for this to all go down the drain. It's really just one or two because mm-hmm. it, all it takes is one or two people to become, who are the virus come into contact with more and it spreads exponentially. And yep. I think that's the problem that a lot of these universities are uncovering right now is that, you know, these athletes have a lot at stake, maybe a pro career, maybe millions of dollars potentially, or just, you know, they really want to play. They're bought in, they work hard. And it's not the same necessarily for every other kid that's on campus. We saw, and you reported this, I believe, I can't remember if it was early May or late May, but I believe it was the Michigan president who said that if there wasn't students on campus, it would be really hard to play football. Mm-hmm. As now we're starting to see a lot of these schools transition to online learning or the, or the, the possibility of that is really coming up in a lot of cases, are college presidents still trying to stick to that of, hey, if, if you guys don't behave on campus – that we're going to have to cancel the football season? Are, are they using that almost as a bargaining chip to try to get the the normal everyday students to really uh, buy into the same guidelines that the athletes have to live by? Well, I think they do want everyone to be compliant with these guidelines, but everyone is being so fluid that there are very few people that are still singing the same tune that they weren't in May. Mm-hmm. And, like, just last week we were asking some of the administrators at North Carolina and Notre Dame where um, – you know, there were outbreaks and things moved virtually. Okay, so if you send everyone home except for the athletes, you know, what does that mean? Because back in the spring, you said that if there weren't student athletes, if there weren't students on campus, there shouldn't be sports. Yeah. And it looks like you're heading directly toward that. And now you say, well, our definition of what school is has changed. And, you know, it's, it's maddening because, yeah. and I think it's also pointing out a lot of the hypocrisy in the college world because these people are just doing whatever is convenient. And you're seeing that in their responses and that there's not really consistency in whatever people are saying throughout the summer. And, you know, at Michigan, they're not playing football, but they are having kids move in. They're doing a surveillance testing program. They are trying to do some level of in-person classes. So in theory, they kind of made the choice to not do sports before the other way around. But Mm -hmm. I think at a lot of other schools, they might be backed into a corner. So I really appreciate all the time. Like this, this kind of brings me to, to my last question. And many people have brought this up before. It's not original to me, but I'm just curious for your take on it. Are these decisions being made by the NCAA and the various conferences uh, being made to protect the amateurism model of college athletics? You know, for example, if they were to employ a bubble just for the football team so they can complete the season, which as the NBA and many other leagues have thus far shown can work, under the current NCA rules, that's an impermissible benefit as a football player would be receiving special treatment that other students would not be. Has anyone just discussed modifying the rules or changing the structure of the system, given just how important college football is to the financial health of the universities and their communities? You know, it's been floated. Um, part of the reason why, and one of the, I guess, biggest rules that stands in the way of creating a bubble is that in, I think, the 90s, the NCAA made a rule that you can't have a dorm that's more than 51% non-athletes. Yeah. So, in plain person speak, you can't have athlete dorms. Mm-hmm. And that was because there were sort of that, there were a lot of schools that were doing that. It became sort of a recruiting arms race thing of, like, how you're seeing really, really nice weight rooms now. But it was like that for dorms. And 
if you change that rule, that would certainly make it easier. But I do think that this amateurism discussion is playing heavily. And if you were just dealing with the coronavirus pandemic and the issues that are brought up with amateurism would be one thing. But because the NCAA is also currently fighting lots of expensive legal battles about name, image, and likeness and mm-hmm. lobbying Congress to kind of redefine what it means to be an amateur, they definitely don't want to concede that much ground because as soon as the NCAA admits, yes, these students have different status, their whole argument for wanting to get an antitrust exemption for Congress to be able to regulate how much money college athletes can make through sponsorships kind of crumbles. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, it's not the only consideration, but it's certainly up there as one of the reasons why these schools don't want to make it look at all like these athletes are being treated differently than the rest of their peers. 100%. It's, it's like once you start to figure out or think you understand one thing about what's going on, it's like there's a whole other thing that is going on in the background that affects something else. It's, it's all just so huge and everything and so intertwined and connected. Yeah. Lane, I really, yeah. Lane, I really, really appreciate all the time. You can Find all your work at thewallstreetjournal.com. And, and what's your Twitter handle in case anyone wants to follow you throughout the, throughout the fall? Yeah, so that is my name, L-A-I-N-E-H-I-G-G-I-N-F-1-7. Perfect. And, you know, just really appreciate the time. Hopefully there'll be college football games uh, this fall to watch and for you to cover. Who knows if there'll be fans in the stands or reports will out there, but hopefully there'll be stuff for at least us to talk about and not just virus cases. Yeah, we will see. I mean, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, TBD. TBD. <laughs> All right, Lane, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, David. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you should subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.